A Tale of Two Cities. Classic literature, right? Charles Dickens. The Charles Dickens who wrote your favorite Christmas story, A Christmas Carol, right? How many of you have watched the movie? How many of you watched that movie? All right, that was kind of a that was kind of a, 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 a joke on you because actually it's a book. It's a book by written by Charles Dickens, and so I have watched a movie um, by. If you've ever watched the movie The Dark Knight Rises, you know Batman. That was actually based off this movie, A Tale of Two Cities. Did you know that? Yes, the the writers of Batman they read classic literature. Crazy. Now, I do have a confession to make. I, I have not read this book, A Tale of Two Cities. Um, I was one of you that probably put your hand up and say, I saw the movie, but I've never actually read the book. But I have read the cliff notes when I was in high school. I did read through the cliff notes. And so I know a little bit about this book, about this story. It's written to describe the period, period leading up to and during the French Revolution. One of the major plot lines of this book uh, centers around the injustice of a rich French um, area, aristocracy towards the common folk, towards the peasants, towards the regular people. And one of the critical incidents in the story tells a story about this uh, rich nobleman who's a marquis. He's a nobleman. And he's, he, he's driving in his carriage and he runs over a peasant boy, killing the peasant boy. And he has no concern for the peasant boy's life. He's more concerned for his horses and the damage that was done to his horses by running over this boy. He expresses no regret. And so this single act of callousness and injustice, it fuels the revolutionary spirit in, in, in one man and one of the main characters of his book, which is the Marquise's nephew who goes on and he continues to fight for justice. And that's the, pretty much the gist of the story, right? In a nutshell. Today, we're going to look at a tale of two cities. Not necessarily a tale of two cities, but rather a type of cities. We're not looking at just two individual cities. We're going to look at two different types of cities that we find in Joshua chapter 20 and Joshua chapter 21. If you have a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to turn there. Um, if you need a Bible, if you just want to slip your hand up, we've got an usher in the back and uh, they'd be able to come and bring one of these Bibles up to you. And um, if you have one of these Bibles, we're on page uh, 167. But uh, we're going to look at a tale of two cities as we've been through the last several weeks in the book of Joshua. We saw chapters one through five, the first couple of weeks in Joshua. It dealt with Israel's preparation to enter into the promised land. Uh, we dealt with them getting ready to go and to conquer the land. Then from chapters six through 12, we looked at the actual battles of, of taking the land of, con of the conquest. We saw the different battles that happened. And the last two weeks, we've had uh, uh, Nate Montgomery and Elias Garcia from Westside Church. They took us through six chapters of Joshua, looking at the dividing up of the land. And uh, so today we're going to continue with that in uh, chapters 20 and 21 for the final kind of division, dividing up of the land. So before we uh, read the first uh, couple of verses of chapter 20, let's go ahead and pray. God, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here today to be in your house, to be with your people. God, we thank you for your word that we are able to come and open up your word and say, God, what is it that you would speak to us about? Because God, we're not coming here to hear a pastor's opinions or, or his insight. God, we want to hear from you directly. So God, I pray as a pastor that you would help me to step out of the way. Lord, that your word would be spoken clearly. 
Lord, you know where all of us have been this past week. You know our, the encouragement we need. You know the challenge that we need. And God, I pray that you would speak directly to every one of us. Help us put out the distractions of life, the distractions around us, so we can focus solely on meeting with you here in this place. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Joshua chapter 20, and let's go ahead and read the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 20. Uh, it's also up on the screen, so if you don't have a uh, uh, Bible in your hand, you can follow along on the screen. And it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain to his, uh, his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is a high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he had fled. So they set apart Kedash and Galilee and the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem and the hill uh, country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, uh, that is Hebron, and the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezar of Reuben and Ramoth of Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger so mourning among them that anyone, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So the first type of city that we're going to look at is what we're going to call cities of refuge. Cities of refuge here in chapter 20. The basic idea for the city of refuge kind of goes like this. The Israelites, they were just in the process of becoming a nation. Uh, so they didn't yet have these, these, these systems in place. They didn't have an established legal system. There were no judges. There were no lawyers. And all the people said, amen. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, there, was, there was no elaborate rules for dealing with every possible circumstance. And so they didn't have a process to deal with this. All they had was the books of Moses. They had the, the, the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all that they had. And they had all the laws that were put in there, but they had not yet been able to put them into practice as a nation. Now, one of the principles that you will read in those books of Moses in the Pentateuch is you're going to read about the retribution principle. This is a famous idea, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If somebody did something to you, you have the right to repay them of the same thing. So it's kind of like if you ever driven over in Seattle, okay? I remember the first time I drove over in Seattle, I drove with my brother. Somehow he convinced me to take him to a Mariners game, yet he's the older one with a better job than I was at the time. But we went to the Mariners game, and I'm driving to Seattle for the first time, and I'm having to get over because you got to get over. So I get over, and some guy starts honking at me and waves at me with one finger, and you know what he does? He cuts me off too. That's the retribution principle. You do something to someone, they're going to do it back to you. Now, the specific application of this here in chapter 20 is dealing with somebody who has been killed. 
The law stated that if somebody in your family was, was killed, uh, was murdered, that someone in your family would be permitted to avenge that death by killing the murderer. In verse 3, they call this person the avenger of death. So we're going to call it the avengers, right? He's the avenger, okay? But the question is, the question becomes this. What happens if it was an accident? What happens if it was an accident that caused the death? Does that still allow the avenger to come and take that man's life? Deuteronomy chapter 19, God gives us an, an example of this. It describes this type of accident. Where two dudes, they go out to, to cut woods, a guy and his neighbor. And one guy is, is using his axe and the handle of the axe breaks off. And the head of the axe breaks off and hits the other guy and kills him. Okay? And he says, hey, there was no intent. There was no hatred. And so something has to be done. In our day and age, we would call that an accident. It would be an accidental death. But you got to remember, with no police squad enforcing the law, with no trials, with no jury, with no court system, only a system based on retribution, something had to be done. There was a need for something else to happen. Hence, our cities of refuge. So the instructions that are laid out in this chapter is that if there's one of these accidental deaths, verse 4 says that the person, we'll call them the manslayer, the manslayer, they would have the opportunity to run to the nearest city of refuge. And once they got there, they could present their story to the elders at the city gates. They could say, hey, here's the background. Here's what happened. And if the story on the surface seems legitimate, then the elders of the city would allow him into the city and they would provide protection from him from the Avengers, right? And uh, it goes on that says, um, once he is there, um, verse 6 says that he would be his story would be presented in a trial, basically, before the people, before the congregation. You would allow to be go for trial for judgment. And if it was voted that was an accidental death, if it was voted that it was, in fact, an accident, there was no hatred, there was no intention, there was no of these other things that happened, that the manslayer would be allowed to live free from retribution in that city of refuge, refuge until the time that the high priest died, and then he would be able to return home as a free man. Okay. And notice, as we read through those verses, notice that in verse 9, that this was not just for Israel. But God also very clearly says that the sojourner among you, a non-Israelite, somebody who isn't necessarily a part of the family of God, that they were to be able to find refuge if this instance happened. So these cities of refuge, they became a place of hope. They became a place of justice. There was grace and mercy and justice. So when we're talking about these cities of refuge, I want you to see two things from these cities of refuge. First thing I want you to see is I want you to see that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. See, as you can imagine, the, the, the avenger, the relative that was responsible for the retribution, you can imagine possibly in the heat of the moment, Possibly dealing with the emotions of the, 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 the morning of, of murder. Quite possibly, when you're angry, you respond before you listen, right? Some of us do that all the time. We speak before we think, right? And we get ourselves in trouble because we do this. Am I right? I mean, how many times in, in a marriage, how many times, husbands, have you done this? You've spoken before you thought. And it leads to trouble, okay? And so, and so... Quite possibly, the avenger would react before the full story was told, before the facts were made known, and could be dealt with properly. 
And the heat of the moment, the emotion of mourning, this could happen. And so vindictive just vengeance rather than proper retribution would rule. This would be a matter of vindictive vengeance as opposed to proper retribution. So there would have been an injustice added to the tragedy. So the city of refuge shows that God is concerned about justice. His law and his rule, they take note of motives and intentions. A man with a murderer's heart doesn't deserve, a man, excuse me, a man without a murderer's heart does not deserve the same penalty of a murderer. And so hence the cities of refuge, they show that God is concerned about justice. But the second thing the cities of refuge show is they show that God is concerned for the sanctity of human life. This chapter breathes God's love and value and the sanctity that God puts on human life. And we see this clearly. The manslayer, his life was precious. His life was precious, hence God providing him a city where he can come and have protection. It would be wrong for his life to be taken in vengeance. So there is a value that God is putting on his life. But you might miss this. There's also a value that God is putting on the dead man's life as well. There's a sanctity to his life. See, the city of refuge was not just a place of safety for the manslayer, but is also a place of exile. The manslayer enjoys protection, but he also suffers a penalty. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are sports fans, but, you know, several years ago, there was a uh, linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens named Ray Lewis. And Ray Lewis was accused of murder, and he figured out the legal system, and he was able to walk free after being accused of murder. And there's a cloud about the case, and he walked free, and there was no judgment. This is not the case with the manslayer. The manslayer, assuming that his case is decided in his favor, he can't return home. He can't return to his normal life. Verse 6 clearly says that he must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And if he leaves that city, then the manslayer is fair game for the Avengers. So these cities become both a, a place of refuge and a prison. The idea that we see painted here is the sanctity of human life. Destroying human life is very costly, even when it is unintentional. Life made in God's image always remains exceedingly sacred. So that's one type of city. That's the the cities of refuge. In chapter 1, we're going to be, in chapter 21, we're going to be introduced to the second type of city. These are the Levite cities. Now, The important background we need to understand before we talk about the Levite cities is we need to understand that the tribe of Levi was not entitled to inheritance of the land like the other tribes of Israel, okay? In Genesis chapter 49, which is about 400 years plus before the conquest, uh, two brothers named Simeon Simeon and Levi, who were the patriarchs of the Simeonites and the Levites, they were condemned by their father Israel for their angry and violent spirits. And they were told that they would not receive a normal inheritance of the land. There was a story with their sister, and they went to avenge their death, and they were very, 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 very mean and hateful in that. And so they were judged by their father, and the father said, hey, someday when we get the land, you guys are not going to get the same inheritance. Okay? Now, when we see the conquest, we saw that Simeon's descendants, uh, they were given only a few cities inside the uh, land allotted to Judah. And what we end up finding as we continue reading through Scripture is that the tribe of Judah 
eventually absorbs the Simeonites into themselves. And so essentially the Simeonites are disappear from history. Okay. But the Levites, the Levites, 30 years, 40 years before this happened, they sided with Moses against worshiping the golden calf in Exodus chapter 20. So God chose the Levites to be his priests. And instead of giving them the land, he would assign them 48 cities, the six cities of refuge and additional 42 cities for the priests to live in. So God has given a special calling on the Levites. Okay. He's given them special spiritual responsibilities. And these are pretty high responsibilities that God has given them. Their chief role was to preserve the purity of worship of God in Israel. And how, how were they to do this? How were they to preserve the purity of worship? They were to do this by leading Israel in worship, by guarding and protecting the tabernacle and eventually the temple, by offering sacrifices, by teaching Israel the word of God, by defending the truth of God from attacks, especially from sin within the community. So really, as we look at the city of, cities of Levites, there's, there's, there's a couple main purposes that we want to focus on. One of the main purposes for these cities, for the Levites, were they were to uh, focus on the teaching of God's word, and they were to focus on leading Israel in worship. Look at the first three verses of chapter 21 with me. They say this, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, they came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them, At Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Verses 4 through 11 now are going to uh, describe how these cities are, are given up by, uh, by, by lot. And then verses 12 through the end of the chapter, or 12 through 40, are going to describe all these cities by name. And if you want to read those, you're welcome to do that. But for sake of time, we're just going to talk through a few things from those first couple of verses. A couple things to notice about these cities of the Levites. Number one, I want you to see that these cities that the Levites were given, were given out of Israel's inheritance. Verse 3 says, so by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The towns that are listed in this chapter, they've already been previously given to the other tribes of Israel. All other tribes, these cities had belonged to them. They were given to them. Yet the other tribes, they gave these cities back to God to be given to the Levites who were God's servants. The sense I get from verse, verse 3 is that they gave these cities back to God in gladness. In fact, when we read verse 11, it's very interesting to point out. We read about the city of Hebron being one of the first cities that was listed as being given back to the Levites. Now, there's, there's a history with the city of, uh, of Hebron, which is very intriguing. Okay, if you missed it, Joshua chapter 14 that Nate covered a couple weeks ago tells the story of a dude named Caleb. Caleb was an 85-year-old guy who had fought and he defeated giants of the land to claim his inheritance. In fact, Caleb had waited 45 years to claim his inheritance. He waited for God's promise to be kept for 45 years. And finally, in, in, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 14, verse 13, 
Joshua gives him the city of Hebron for his inheritance. So this dude, Caleb, he's old. He, you know, his, his hairline is completely gone. He's waited for a long time for this city. He's, he's battled against giants and he's been victorious against giants. And, and finally he gets the city. And what does he do with that city? He gives his city back to God. I mean, this is an incredible ending to an incredible story. Think about all this guy went through, all that his family went through to finally receive their inheritance. And what does he do with it? He gives it back to God to be given to the Levites. This story tells us that it was all about God. God keeps his promises to Israel. God gives Israel the inheritance. And now the land is theirs. The the inheritance was to the land. And now that the land is Israel's, even with all the blessing and even with everything that God has given them, it's still, it's not about Israel. It's all about God. See, it's dangerous for us to think that we've earned what we have. It would be dangerous for Caleb to say, you know, I've earned this city. I have waited all this time. I have worked so hard. I've, I've done all the right things. I deserve this now. It would be wrong for Caleb to have that kind of attitude. And it would be wrong for us to have the attitude that we have earned all that we have. You know, it'd be wrong for us to have the attitude that we deserve it because we are so awesome. The reality is it all comes from God anyways. All of the gifts that we have, all of the abilities we've been given, all of the resources we have, all of the friendships and all of the opportunities, they belong to God. This is why we can't hold on to things too tightly. We can't get deluded into thinking that we've earned these things and we deserve these things and that we're in charge. Psalms chapter 24 verse 1 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. So the Israelites, they gave these cities back to God because they realized, hey, the blessing came from God anyways. And this should be the model that we look like in our own lives. But the second thing I want you to see in these cities of Levites is I want you to see that the Levites, they claimed the promises of God. Look back at verse 2. Verse 2, it says the the Levites, they came forward and said, The Lord, says the Lord, that he commanded that we be given the cities. The Lord commanded that we be given. They came forward to claim the promise that God had already given to them. Caleb did the same thing in chapter 14. He came forward to claim what God had promised. And really, the Levites, what they're doing is they're setting a pattern for us on how we should pray. What God has promised, what God has authorized to us, we should absolutely seek in prayer. Okay, now we're not talking about some health and wellness gospel. We're not talking about the prosperity philosophy. This isn't a name it and claim it thing. That's that's just a bunch of garbage that takes scripture way out of context. But here we see that there are some awesome promises that, that God has made in his word. That way it would be wise for us to pray And to say, hey, God, you said this, and today, God, I need this. Okay? For example, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to men liberally. Okay? And so, when you are faced with hard decisions, when you're faced with difficult circumstances, things that you can't handle on your own, 
You pray and you say to God, you say, God, you said in your word to ask for wisdom and that you give to men generously. So now, God, I need your wisdom. God, I need your direction. God, I need your involvement. That's how you claim God's promise in that verse. Claiming the promise of of God means that when we hear that little voice of the enemy in the back of our heads, when you hear that little voice in the back of your head, I'm not the only one that hears this. The little voice that says, you're all alone. God doesn't love you. God's turned his back on you. When you hear that little voice, that then you claim God's promises that he says in, in Hebrews, that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is how we claim the promises of God. We read God's word and God's word speaks to us and we pray through God's word. Say, God, this is what you said. You will never leave me nor forsake me. So God, right now, I need to be reminded of this. And God, I need your presence in my life right now. This is how we do what the Israelites are doing. We claim the promises that God has extended to us. So that's the tale of two cities. The cities of refuge, the the Levitical cities. One city represents grace and mercy and hope. And one city represents the word of God and the worship of God. So the question is, what does this have to do with us? What are we supposed to get out of this 3,000, 4,000 years later? To answer that question, I want to show you a couple of maps. The first map up here is going to show you the cities of refuge. As you see these cities of refuge, there are six of them. On either, three of them on either side of the, uh, of, of the Jordan River. They're spread up in the north, the central, and the south. Spread out across the entire land. Okay? These cities were accessible to everybody in Israel. Strategically located. And look at this next map, the cities of the Levites. You'll see in this one, a little harder to see, but each of those little dots up there is one of these Levitical cities. These Levitical cities are spread out all across the land. There were six cities of refuge and another 42 individual cities. They're equally spread out all across the land. This would mean that every Israelite in the land would live within only a few miles of a Levite town where they could hear the word of God and could spend time in worship. So as we look at these cities, we look at where these cities are are located on the map. There's a conclusion that I can make that I believe is valid about the city uh, or about Israel. See, I believe that God wanted his people. God wanted his land to be a place of worship. A place that the word of God was taught. A place of refuge, of hope, and of mercy. As you look and you see how these cities are spread across the inheritance, they're accessible, they're all over the place, they're spread out evenly, meaning that the cities of refuge and and the place to worship God were accessible to every person in Israel. They were to be a land committed to, to God's word. They were to be a land committed to the worship of God. They were to be a land that provided a refuge. And if this land is to be a place like this, then the people should model the same thing. They, as a people, were to put an emphasis on being a refuge for each other, on being committed to the word of God, and on being a people who worship God alone. But just as much as this speaks towards Israel of what they were supposed to look like so many years ago. I believe this also speaks to 
what the church should look like today as well. Restoration Church, I believe this is exactly what God wants for this place. I believe that this is what God wants for us as a people. I believe that we as a church are to be a place who worships the one true God. Remember the map of the land? The cities were spread out over the entire inheritance. Worship did not just happen in one little corner of the land, but it filled the entire inheritance. See, our temptation is to put our Christianity in a box, to put our God in a box and say, God, you get this section. You know, you get my, you get my Sunday morning and I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll sing some songs and I'll, and I'll, and I'll listen to the pastor preach the Bible and I'll put my $20 in the offering and, and then I'll be good. But the rest of my life, the rest of my week, the rest of my life, it's mine. And I'm going to do what I want to do because I already did the God thing on that Sunday morning. Okay, God's desire is that we be a people who worship him throughout all of our portion, throughout our entire life, that we acknowledge and we surrender to him in all, our, all of our lives. Worship isn't just something we do on a Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. That is our devotion to God. But, but this is what happens. What happens is because of sin, our lifestyle of worship becomes a dysfunctional lifestyle for us. We're supposed to be completely devoted to God. That's supposed to be what our life looks like. But we end up leaving these dysfunctional lives. We have a worship disorder. We will fail to worship God because we want to worship other things instead. And so we know, hey, God is, is supposed to be the thing I worship, but you know, maybe the rest of the week you start worshiping money or relationships Careers, hobbies, your children, your security, your future. See, look here, all of those things, they aren't really yours. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. Your money, your relationships, your career, your children, your security, your future, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. And these things, they make terrible idols to worship because you will find that they will never, ever satisfy you. You worship money long enough and you'll find out you'll never have enough. You worship relationships long enough and you realize no relationship will ever be perfect. You worship your future long enough and you realize you have no control for the future. You don't have the ability to control what happens. God does. It belongs to him. So let's be a people who worship God with all of our portion, with all of our lives, with all that we are in every aspect. See, I believe, secondly, that we're to be a church of people who are fully and completely devoted to the word of God. This is why when we get together on Sunday morning, it isn't just a self-help talk to make you feel good about yourself. If you want a self-help talk, you can stay home and wear footed pajamas and watch Oprah every day. I got no problem with that. We aren't going to be the self-help people. We are to be a people that, 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 a place that teaches and instructs people in the word of God. John chapter 8, Jesus says this, Jesus says, if you abide in my word. It says, if you remain in my word, if you study and take your direction and instruction from my word, if you abide in my word, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Let's not just be a place that only preaches the call of the gospel, but fails to preach the depth of the gospel as well. Let's not be a place that loves to count the sheep, but never feeds the sheep. And thirdly, finally, my prayer is that we would be a place, that we would be a place of refuge, both for us here in the church and for the hurting world around us. I want us to be a place of refuge, a place of hope, a place where people with broken hearts and wounded souls can come and find comfort, can find protection, can find hope. I mean, the reality is people have messy lives. You and I, we can put a facade on Sunday morning, but chances are we have a messy lives. Chances are some of us had an argument with our wives last night that didn't end very well. We live messy lives. And we need a refuge, a place where we can come and find hope, that we can find peace, that we can find joy, that we can find healing, that we can find wholeness, that they can find salvation that comes from the only one who truly offers it, Jesus Christ. See, most people in our city, many of them aren't going to need a a physical refuge, unless maybe there's an abusive situation. Most people today in our city, they need a relational place of refuge. They need a group of people with whom it is okay to be real. It is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to acknowledge that we're broken. It is okay to acknowledge that we make mistakes. It is okay to acknowledge that life isn't perfect. We need a place that we can step in and say, hey, I don't have it all figured out. I mean, this whole thing of faith, I still have my doubts. I still struggle through this. And that's not a bad thing. We can be real with each other. This is what it's supposed to be. Life isn't perfect. And, and in fact, what, what, what I've seen in ministry is that most people, most people first, they need to find a, 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 a they need to be offered refuge and mercy and grace modeled in life and in relationship through people like you and I, before they will realize the love and the grace, the mercy that is offered through, from Jesus Christ. They want to see it modeled out in life first. Now, I know this all ties into the mission and vision of the church. This ties into the reason that we planted Restoration Church over a year ago. We said we want to be a church for the city. We want to be a multi-ethnic and economically diverse that, that doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter where you came from. We can come and worship God together and we can be committed to the things of God together. And, and, and we say, well, of course, pastor, of course, you know, we're a place of refuge. It's in our vision. That's, that's in our vision statement. That's, that's why we're here, pastor. Of course, we got those things nailed out. But there's a difference between vision and culture. There's a difference between vision and culture. Vision is an idea. It's the goal. It's a place that all of us should be agreeing to and saying, this is where we're headed. Okay? Culture, it's what most of us do most of the time. And and this is what I've determined. Culture trumps vision every time. Culture will trump vision every time. We've got our vision out here. This is where we're going. But that vision isn't going to mean anything to the person who comes in on the street, who is pregnant, who is alone, who is overwhelmed, if we don't actually practice it right here with each other. If we don't put this into practice, who cares about a vision? 
Because the culture is going to permeate and say, hey, they have this great vision, but that's not who they are. They're really just another group of religious people who gather to talk about religious things and have religious services. There's no refuge. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no hope. There's just a bunch of rules that I've got to follow through and I've got to jump through if I'm really going to be accepted into the fold and into the group. See, if we want to reach this city, if we, if we want to make a difference in the kingdom of God, we can't just talk about it. We actually have to do this. And I sat down and wrote these words this past week and I felt convicted. I felt convicted. Because it's so easy for us just to talk about it. Say, this is where we're going. But how many of us in our lives can actually say, hey, we are a refuge for somebody around us. We are offering grace to somebody whose life is a little bit messy. Whose life has difficult circumstances. We are walking along someone who doesn't have the strength or the confidence to walk on their own anymore. Uh, we talk about doing this. We talk about the vision. But do we actually do these things? Church, you are loved. Every one of you. Regardless of your ethnicity. Regardless of your financial status. Regardless of the struggles that you are facing. Regardless of how impossible your life is right now. You are loved. We are here for you. We want to walk alongside you. But as much as we desire to be a refuge for you, a place of acceptance and love, what we really want to do is we want to introduce you to the ultimate refuge. The ultimate refuge doesn't just protect the innocent, but he provides refuge and, and hope for the guilty. That refuge is God. Hebrews 6, 18 through 20 describes God as our refuge like this. It says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. For we who have fled for our refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, when you surrender to your life to God, when you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he becomes your refuge, who is always available to you, who gives you hope that you can hold on to, and who becomes the anchor of your soul. Restoration Church, would you join me instead of just making this a vision? But actually saying, let's put this into practice. Let's get our hands dirty. Let's welcome the stranger. Let's welcome the person who is hurting. Let's walk alongside them. Let's wrap our arms around them. Let's pray for them. We look at the people in Iraq right now. You think they need a refuge? Might be a little difficult for you to fly to Iraq. But could you pray to God on their behalf? I want to invite you this morning to respond to God with me. Here at Restoration Church, we have designed our services intentionally to include 10 to 15 minutes of worship at the end of our service, uh, end of the message, that allows us a time to respond to God's word.
So perhaps today, perhaps today you need to respond to God through prayer. Maybe for you, God is calling you into a relationship with him. Maybe God is saying, would you finally come to me as your savior? Surrender your life to me and decide to become a Christian. Maybe today God has spoken to you about something in your life that needs to be dealt with. Maybe you are overwhelmed with life right now. And maybe today you come in and you say, I need a refuge. I need hope. I need love. I need acceptance. I need peace. If that's you, can I invite you to spend a few minutes this morning just calling out, praying to God? We'll have a couple of counselors up front. If you'd like to come forward and and pray with one of us and have one of us pray for you, we'd love to be able to do that. I would love to be able to pray with you and, and, and beseech God on your behalf. Or you can stay in your own seat and pray where you are. Perhaps today you need to respond to God through worship. I would encourage you to join the worship team and just close your eyes and just praise God for how awesome he is. Praise him that he is your perfect refuge. Praise him that he has carried you through every step of your life. Praise him that every blessing you've been given comes from him and comes from him alone. However you need to respond, I encourage you today to do business with God in these next few minutes. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you and just thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are a refuge. That God, it doesn't matter how difficult our life is, how overwhelming the obstacles are, that God, we can come to you and that you would provide us that protection, that you would give us life, that you would speak your life into us, that you would energize us, that you would comfort us, That you would carry us through these hard times. God, I pray for those in here today who are hurting. I pray, God, that they would see you as their refuge. That they would see you as a safe place that they could turn to and say, God, I can't do this on my own. God, I need you here. God, I need you now. God, I pray that they would surrender themselves to you and say, God, would you meet with me right here? Would you let me experience your refuge, your hope? your grace, your mercy. God, I pray for us as a church that we would be willing to walk alongside people who are hurting, that we wouldn't be so busy with our Christian lives and with our, with our own lives that we would look for people around us. God, you've planted us all over the city and different places of work and different neighborhoods that we live in. God, I pray that we would look and we would become a refuge for the hurting around us. That we would welcome them in. That we would love them. And that we would point them to you. God, you are worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. God, as a church, we want to be a place of worship. So God, I pray right now that you would just draw that worship out of us. That we'd be able to get lost in, in, in praising you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And thank you for meeting us here today. We ask this in your name. Amen.